What's up, everybody? Today we are interviewing Mark Letty, the co-owner of the Beachland Ballroom. It's an awesome podcast. We can't wait for you all to hear it. And now, let's hit it off. questions i was looking up doing some research and so obviously we talked off air about what you guys are doing with covid when did you guys start being able to have shows again in the ballroom and um what has been the effect on not only you guys but that you've seen on the music business well the music business is just turned upside down I mean, it's it's not even the same business anymore Obviously, it will return, but we're not expecting really until 2022 to see so things return back anywhere like they once were. That's kind of nuts, huh? 2022? So, I mean, you're, uh, you're not booking anything 2021? Where does that number come from? Well, we are. What, what, well, I said in a in a, in anything like the normal mm-hmm. sense. So our we can do shows now, um, legally do shows, uh, but we have at about fifteen percent capacity compared to what we used to be able to do. That has made our tavern room, which used to have one hundred and forty eight capacity, now has a capacity of about fifteen. It's not even worth doing anything in there. Our ballroom, which was a 500 capacity room, is now a 64 capacity room. And shows all have to be seated with, you know, wait staff. You, there's no bar, you can't go to the bar and get a drink. You have to have uh, wait staff come and bring your beer or food or whatever you're gonna have. And uh, we're trying to make up for some of that capacity loss by doing two shows per night with touring uh, acts. So that at least doubles your number. Uh, we have one show next week with uh, Tab Benoit, who's a, you know, a Cajun blues man who you know, historically did really well here. We're doing four shows or possibly three shows over two nights. We're gonna try to see where the tickets come in, but he's gonna be here for two days. And, uh, you know, we're going to try to fill that room three to four times to kind of, <laughs> but it's difficult for both artists and venue. I mean, he's going to make less doing four shows than considerably less than he used to make in doing a single show here. And obviously from the bar revenue, food revenue, those kinds of things are numbers are way off and we have to be done at 10 o'clock. Oh wow! Um, so, uh, Wait, so, and many many artists are I I know like a lot of the artists have moved to live streaming and just having shows and live streaming and out like I I don't know if you know this how many artists probably many aren't probably looking to tour because you just said of the money reason right there mm-hmm. like nationally I think it'd be super difficult for any well a lot of acts aren't touring there are some that are I mean. If you're a professional musician, uh, there isn't much money in record sales anymore. You have to get out on the road and tour. So, you know, it's putting a hurt on their livelihoods. And then they all have crews of people that are their tour managers and their sound and light guys and all those people are, uh, you know, so some bands are braving it out and trying to do it on the road as much, you know, trying to keep on the road. Many aren't. So we're trying to find a few select shows that we think might still be, uh, you know, make sense from a, uh, from a, you know, still be profitable for us. Um, and has there been profits cut all across the board? Is every person taking a cut? Or are you as the owner, are you taking, you know, majority of the, the loss? Well, um, you know, we've got a, much smaller staff than we had in pre-COVID times. We do have a small 
a much smaller crew working that we've been able to keep employed. But, uh, you know, that's, that's difficult. Um, you know, early on in the pandemic, there was some uh, stimulus programs to try to keep places afloat, help them maintain their payroll and their utilities and such. But that was, uh, that all expired at the end of the July. And there really hasn't been anything to replace that, at least from the federal level. Now, there are some state and uh, county programs that we're trying to apply. We're spending a lot of time applying for grants and other things because it's just, you know, they're, we're legally allowed to be open, but no bar or restaurant can really be profitable on those, uh, you know, right. closing scale. Closing at 10 o'clock. Closing too. at 10 o'clock, only having 15% capacity. I mean, you know, most places need to be, you know, closer to full capacity, at least at least on the weekends or, you know, four or five nights a week. And it's uh, it's just not there for us right now. And how's the public response? Are, are tickets selling or are people apprehensive? A lot of people are apprehensive and some people are buying tickets, um, but many are not. Uh, it's, it's dicey. I mean, in the, we got going in August uh, a little bit and, and, and for well, the weather was still nice. We had we bought a very large tent, and we put we were presenting shows outside. People were more comfortable with that. Uh, but now we can't. You know, today is a very unusual day for November. But uh, you can't really do outside shows when the temperature is much below sixty. Uh, it's difficult to do. Well, I bet there are still regulations when you're doing it outside, right? Well, there are. Yeah, there are. There are indeed. And uh, all those same regulations apply. Um, I think just the public is more comfortable. We still sure. have to do table service. We still have to have all of the tables need to be six feet apart from the next table. And we still have to try to enforce that you have to sit at your table uh, and get served. And if you're going to... Which is a weird concept for music, because, you know, the whole point of going to see a show or see an artist in, like, this intimate setting mm -hmm. is you want to dance, you want to enjoy it. But, like, I can't, other than, like, maybe doing homework or typing or something, like, I don't really sit and just, like, listen to music, right? You know, you want to dance to it. It's, it's part of the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, and you want to, you know, go out and, oh, there's someone I know, and you want to go talk to them, and we're in this weird position where we then have to try to stop people from intermingling, where usually we are here to promote that kind of activity as a social, you know, people do want to hear good music here, but it's also a social scene that you come and see a, you know, a cool new band's coming through town, and you want to go there, and you'll meet some friends there and even people you didn't know you were going to meet there you'll run into people that you know and have shots at the bar or catch up and you know all a lot of that is uh either doesn't happen anymore or happens in a you know very uh, limited way i imagine the energy of the shows you know the energies that the performers bring is almost it's, an unplugged it's know. it is more unplugged yeah it's more we're now more of a i hate the word but like more of a supper club yeah. model which <clears throat> you know works better for some kinds of acts than others right. um <clears throat> when i know the show that I saw here a couple, it was four years ago. And high school is the main squeeze. And I know it's probably gonna be cool from an owner's standpoint. They were, four years ago, they were like nowhere. They weren't, they were good. They weren't pretty decently I remember sized. That show. And I remember, I followed them because I love the singer's voice, right? And now I, I follow their YouTube, I follow their Spotify, all that. And what's it like for you, uh, just using that show as an example, how cool is it to see those kind of artists kind of blow up not blow up but like rise in popularity and they come through here mm -hmm. well we've had you know we've seen many many acts that started here small um, and got much bigger in some cases way way bigger and 
one of the nice things that, that we've had in this venue is that a lot of acts start in our 148 capacity room and when they can sell that out we can graduate them into our 500 capacity uh, ballroom <clears throat> and you know and then some acts that get too big for the beachland we with many acts have been able to maintain a relationship and become a presenter <clears throat> of a show in a larger room like the Agora or the House of Blues or even bigger rooms in some cases. Um, and then I know I was looking at your LinkedIn doing some research. So it said on your LinkedIn that you're the talent buyer, which I assume to be you go out and you find acts to bring in. Do I have that correctly? Do, did I assume correctly on that front? Well, that's... <clears throat> That's generally generally what it is, um, and we are always scouting or looking at tips for a band that we might want to look at. But the way the national concert touring business works is it's more that the, a band is on tour and the agent reaches out, their booking agent then reaches out to me, and says, "I have the main squeeze available," and then you decide or, if you want them. And well, we have to. We have to finagle what the deal is going to be. Do we have the date available in the time frame that, they, that they're going to be in the region? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Uh, then we have to agree on what their compensation is going to be, what the ticket prices are going to be, and a lot of things like that. And eventually we get to a deal, and we put a show on sale, and, and there it goes. So <clears throat> a good bit of our schedule is made up uh, with you know, more local acts where it's a sl generally a little more informal uh, arrangement. But <clears throat> when it's a touring act, it's very cost prohibitive to like say, uh, just bring in a band for a one-off show. <clears throat> so we generally wait until that band is on tour in the region. And if they're playing in Columbus and Pittsburgh and Chicago, you know, they're probably in Detroit, they probably want to get a Cleveland show in there somewhere. And um, so, you know, we try to see if we have an, a, a date that works for both entities and that we can come to a deal that seems uh, reasonable to both entities, and then we have a show. And then we do our best to promote it and hope we sell enough tickets to cover our expenses on the show and sell some drinks and sell some hamburgers and. If all that works, we are pro you know we have a profitable night. Now, are you so when you're negotiating these contracts, are they are the artists getting paid up front, no matter uh, what how many tickets they sell, and <clears throat> you guys are taking you know. The well, there's almost as many deals as there are shows. Mm -hmm. um, for uh, touring acts, the most typical deal would be that they get some kind of an upfront guarantee. Uh, and then there's usually a provision that if the show exceeds certain numbers, then they would get uh, additional uh, revenue uh, from that. Um, now, there are also shows that are just on a straight-up door deal where there is no guaranteed money. If it's a brand-new band that I'm not convinced has a following here yet, I'm going to probably push for, like, you know, I think you guys sound good. This band sounds good, but I, I'm not convinced that they have a following in the market yet, so I'm willing to try it, and you can take 60% of the gate. And then I'll pay 20% to a local band to open, and then 20% for club expenses. Um, some of the very biggest bands that are playing here forego the guarantee deal because they're so confident they can sell it out they choose to just take a percentage deal and then try to push me as hard as they can on how high that percentage is because they're not worried about filling the room so rather than get a guarantee <clears throat> they would rather just play for 80 percent of the door uh, mm -hmm. after taxes are taken out and you know something like that any of these uh these, you know, negotiations coming to mind? Any, uh, any stories, you know, arguing with managers, arguing with, uh, you know, negotiations? Well, uh, I mean, on the level that we're at, it's mostly, 
you know, it's usually pretty a pretty friendly exchange, but it, you know, there's some really tough booking agents to work with. And bands usually have a tour manager who comes in and is kind of the in-between between the venue and the band. And mostly we get really good tour managers that help make the show work, but sometimes you get someone who's just being very argumentative or asking things that are really well beyond what was stipulated in the original deal. And, you know, sometimes there's fights. I'd rather not name names on sure. any of those oh, negative sure. ones, but... Um, do you have any Do you have any bands that you really enjoy working with, or same kind of thing? Well, as I said to begin with, most of the bands playing at this level are pretty good to work yeah. with, okay. and are appreciative, sure. and we have a very good staff that knows how to take care of bands. I mean, a lot of people who work at the Beachland are in bands, or were in bands, or somehow interested in the whole music scene. Um, so. Bands tend to be impressed with the, you know, the dedication and the knowledge of our staff and that we're, you know, we aim to be well organized so that everything runs uh, smoothly and, you know, we have a good room with good acoustics and usually a good audience that's going to be appreciative and so we have a lot of bands that have been coming here for years or decades even, you know, there's some Many bands that have played here 15, 20, 25 times now, touring, oh, wow. touring acts, because they've been playing here since 2000 or 2001. Now, Mark, and, how long have you yourself been in the music industry? Well, the Beachland has been around since March of 2000, so that's uh, we hit our 20-year anniversary um, last March. And that was, and then we were shut down like a week later. <laughs> <laughs> so at least we got that in. Um, uh, I did do some, uh, you know, I, uh, a little more of like a hobby prior to the Beachland. I booked a little tiny joint down in the industrial part of the flats. It's called Pats in the Flats. And uh, I started booking shows there in uh, mostly from 96 through 1996, 97, 98, 99. Uh, until the Beachland opened, and then I moved over here. Now, that was really more of a hobby, but I did make some money at it. And we did bring in some pretty amazing acts at this little uh, joint down there called Pats in the Flats, including, like, for instance, the White Stripes' first show outside of Detroit was at Pats in the Flats. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. So... Um, you know, tell me, uh, can you tell us more? How did you get into the booking industry? How did you even know that this was, you know, a profitable avenue? You said mm -hmm. it started as kind of a hobby. As well as that, so was Pats in the Flats kind of like a side gig for whatever you were doing at that? Yeah, time? it was. Um, at that time, I had I had left a long term job, so I was doing I you know I sort of deal in uh, vintage uh, and antique items, and I prior to this I did a lot of political campaign work. So when I was doing pats in the flats, I was wearing you know three four different hats without like a day to day job. So. Um, you know, if we paid the bands and we made it enough at the door, my, you know, I had a partner at the time who now lives in Austin, Texas, but, you know, we would make, we would make some money doing it. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly where the question started, but um, I... Uh, Just how you getting into the booking industry and, and yeah. seeing it... Well, it was mainly be because I was a music fan, and I also played in a band in those days. I really haven't played a whole lot uh, recently, but um, partly as I was looking for a place for my own band to play, and I, I wasn't really... The, the venues that were booking at that time, we were, we were having a hard time breaking in there and we thought maybe we could do it better on our own so we booked ourselves at this bar that had one time had shows but hadn't in five or six years and then I started bringing down or you know just reaching out to bands that were in the region so um, I played in a band at that time called Satan Satellites and we were kind of a surf garage band and 
there was a band from Detroit called The Henchmen who I really liked, and you know I called them up. They didn't really even have a booking agent, but they they said, oh yeah, we'd come down and play with you, and so they came down. And then the second, the next time they came down, they're like, oh, there's some buddies of ours that would like to come with us. They're called the White Stripes. Is that cool? And I'm like, yeah, they sound good. And so we booked them there, and then they came back and played there again. And so by the time the Beachland opened. I had some really nice contacts with the Detroit garage scene that was developing at the time. Um, so, you know, it was mostly out of, mu- you know, initially mostly out of being a f- fan of live music, not feeling that any of the clubs in town at that time were really booking the bands that I wanted to see. And, uh, you know, it was also self-interest that I, I wanted to bring those bands down sometimes so that my band could play with them or the guy that I was booking with at the, or booking those shows with at the time, Doug, he also had his band. So and all that stuff sort of intermingled. Um, and then sometime in uh, 1999, uh, my partner here from the Beachland, Cindy Barber, who's a longtime resident of this neighborhood, saw, saw this space was for sale thought it would make a good music club. She was looking for somebody to do it with. And she knew a little bit about what I was doing at Pats in the Flats because prior to the Beachland, she was the editor of the Cleveland Free Times, which was the main alternative weekly at the time. And she would write a lot of, do a lot of the music writing. And so I knew her from pitching her like, oh, I got these bands coming from Detroit or Pittsburgh or Columbus you should write about them. So she knew a little bit of what I was doing there, and so she got me to come over and look at this space with her. <clears throat> and it looked uh, like a it looked like a lot had a lot of potential because the smaller tavern room was similar to the size of the room that I had at Pats and the Flats. But I also already knew there were acts that I wanted to bring in that were just too big for Pats, and. I also saw here that, like, wow, you know, you could do two shows at the same time. Um, some of your acts that get a little bigger, you could take them over to another room. And I had been a few years without, like, a, you know, after working very hard for, like, one job for 13 years, sort of burnt out with working way too much. I had a few years where I didn't have any, I describe that particular job, but I was kind of ready for... You know, that's nice to do that, and it was like sort of right at a point in my life where it was nice to take a little break, but I'm kind of driven, and so I kind of needed a, you know, I just felt ready for a new challenge. So when this came out there, we started putting a business plan together and try to figure out if we could buy the building from the people who were selling it. Um, but here you are 20 years later. Yeah, somehow we're still here. So instantly you were kind of on board, right? I mean, you figured you knew enough from, you know, Patty's... Uh, Pat's, Pat's and the Flats. Yeah, Pat's and... Well, I had a small Rolodex of bands at the time. Yeah. I mean, that, was, that allowed us to get going the first couple of, you know, the first month or two. Sure. But uh, initially it was hard to get booking agents to take us seriously, but as... Sorry, it's our ice machine. As more, uh, you know, once you book a few bands... <clears throat> and they report back to their agent or other bands they know, then all of a sudden you start getting other calls. So there was this band called Low Straight Jackets that were from Nashville who played here regularly since 2001. They're kind of a s- instrumental, surfy band that plays in Mexican wrestling masks. And, but they, uh, they were from Nashville, and <clears throat> Nashville, of course, is really exploded now as a music center but even then it was and so they had a great time here and then they went back to Nashville and they told their buddies in this cool retro country band called BR549 that you guys ought to go there and then they did that and they had a really good time and then they you know then it get the word starts to get back to booking agents if the booking agents have happy bands like their bands played here had a good experience then they're more comfortable sending more acts there and then you know there's various ways that you know there's uh, agents look at you know there's a, you know like a 
Polestar is this company that tracks the concert business. So they, people are looking at that and they're saying, oh yeah, the, well here's a new club in Beachland that everyone seems, or, or in Cleveland that everyone seems to be playing. And you know, you, you it, first it's very gradual, but over time you build a reputation as being a really quality place to play, and you've got a good, you know, and then you know it got, you know, it's it was. Now it's to the point where there's just so many bands wanting to play here, you know, you've got to just pick the right ones. Right. And do you remember the first time you sold out the main room? Yeah, you know, I, I remember some of the early sellout shows. I think sure. it might have been a Guided by Voices show it was our first sellout, I believe. Yeah, I mean, that had to feel great. It was. We were not prepared. <laughs> we, well, that cry, that's a, that's a band that has um, they're, uh, they're very heavy drinkers themselves, and they bring an audience that's similarly minded. And so, we didn't have nearly enough garbage cans in the facility. There were bottles everywhere, and I don't think we had enough beers or liquor ordered. We were like, oh. you know, we were we were a little under prepared about how much damage at the bar 500 mm-hmm. guided by voices fans could oh my could do but you know you quickly learn you know you we have a, a little management crew and we meet every week and we kind of go through what happened last week that worked well and what didn't and what should our policies and procedures like be going forward at the start though by like don't you you know that you need this and then you can move forward from mm-hmm. after that, mm-hmm. hopefully you don't get audiences that drink as heavy as them. No, no, we want audiences that, that, <laughs> that drink heavily. It's just that we weren't we weren't fully prepared. Because um, I mean, the band's taking a cut at the door, but the bar is all yours, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, the state gets their share. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the state gets gets a share, um, but yeah. We get the bulk of it, yeah. and uh, there's not a lot of be money to be made in the selling of tickets, and I think that's something that a lot of times um, fans don't understand. Oh, like I, I, you know, the ticket was twenty bucks to get in; that ought to take care of the venue. But the way that's works on most of those deals, that twenty dollars is mostly going to the band, and then there's the expenses of the show. We have to advertise it. You have a sound man and a doorman and security and a uh, manager working it. And you have bar staff and restaurant staff and you know it just goes on and on. You have to cover those expenses. Um, and you're often you know sort of gambling when you make an offer to a band that they're going to sell enough tickets. Some days you do, some days you don't. Unfortunately, there's probably more days that you don't than you do. So, uh, ticket revenue is usually like a net loss for us in a given year. Um, so it really comes down to: Are people going to order a hamburger? Or are they going to order a couple of drinks? You hope that most of them do. Although there's there's no, you know, some don't. Some yeah. just come in. Just have a, a bottle of water, you know, or, not, or you know, just ask for some water out of the tap, and they don't leave any money at the club, you know. Would you um, say the ticket sales is for not just for you guys, but in the music industry for most venues, it's the same kind of deals that that happen. Well, there's ticket revenue to be made when you get into bigger shows. Trust okay. me, but on on for a venue like ours, which is presenting tons of new bands. You know, um, the uh, we're presenting a lot of things where there isn't a really big track record of how many tickets this band is worth, and so it's a guess. You know, um, but you're risking that money. You know, it's it's like high stakes gambling every day. Really, is what and it comes down band, to. A band contacts you that you've never even heard of. Where do you go to gauge their crowd? Well, you know, the first thing I, if it, 
looks at all interesting to me. I, you know, I look at their Facebook pages and social media and try to get an idea of, um, you know, does it seem like, you know, some bands you can see right away. It's like, uh, I, I don't think, you know, other than their family, I don't know who's going to come. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I often start there. I mean, I listen to some of their, you know, I listen to some of their videos on YouTube. I look and see how many... You know, are, are people really watching their stuff? You just try to see, is there an engagement right. there? Um, you know, you can look at, uh, if you've seen their play the previous time in Columbus, you can try to figure out and try to talk to that owner, club owner in Columbus to see how they did. There's, there's a decent amount of sharing of information between venues. Venues are very competitive on one level, but... Most, but not all, of the venues in Cleveland work together pretty cooperatively. So, if a band's uh, played at another venue, I, I can often ask the other venue owner, like, uh, "How did they do?" Sure. Now, what what venues? You just talked about competition a little bit. I'm just thinking, like, what other venues are kind of on the same level, same kind of bands that you guys are attracting in Cleveland? Well, that's a complicated question because we have two rooms here. So my tavern room is rather competitive, like, say, with the Happy Dog. But Happy Dog can't do shows in my ballroom size. But for my ballroom size shows, the Grog Shop would be in there, Kent Stage, uh, Music Box, Winchester, um, other places like that. Um, for smaller shows it's you know there's other you know so there's there's uh certain kinds of shows that we compete with with certain venues and not on others you know uh, some of those venues don't book punk rock at all or hip-hop at all but we do so our competition on those kinds of shows is a little different than on a folky show you know we we always aimed at the beachland, and right from our, um, you know, when we were first putting a business plan together, we didn't want to be a rock club or a punk rock club or a blues club or a jazz club or whatever. We wanted to have a, we had a different vision that we'd have two rooms to present music and that we think we can present a wide variety of quality music in different styles and just mix it up day to day, week to week. So what do we have going on in the tavern is going to be very different than what's going on in the ballroom that night. Otherwise, you're just competing with yourself. That's got to keep life interesting from your from booking perspective and just from a music fan, just hearing new and different music than the same thing over and over again for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, that would, that definitely keeps it interesting. And, you know, the Cleveland music markets, there's... Because Cleveland is geographically located where it is, almost every band tours through here. Uh, so there's a lot of venues, and it's pretty easy to get booked, but a lot of nights were not full, and they're not... The other venues aren't full, because there's... It's always a challenge that there's more bands wanting to play here than there really is an audience to support them day after day because you know Cleveland has really good music fans but it's still a finite number you know there's only so many people that regularly go to concerts some people go to maybe one or two a year um, you know but we have people that are regular you know we have some regulars that come to two to three shows a week and some that come to two to three shows a month and some that come two to three shows a quarter um, well, how much would you say, just thinking about that, because you said some people go to one or two shows a year and all that, and I'm thinking, because I know the last, before COVID happened, the last concert I went to was the Lumineers at Rock and Mortgage, and I think the ticket was probably like $90, $95, and so what would you say for people to come weekly to monthly to the ballroom, what's like a normal or average ticket price for... Most of our shows are in the ten to twenty-five dollar range. You know, um, you know, some of the bigger acts are going to be up, up at that higher end of that. And we've had certain shows where tickets have been as high as you know, 
$50, $60. But that would be a, an outlier. And that's show. like a for sure, you know, you're going to sell that out if you're... Right. So, you know, um, you know, we get a few shows a year where it's going to be, you know, an act that's almost an underplay. They could probably be at the House of Blues, but maybe they want the atmosphere of a more of a, you know, a less corporate club or... Uh, you know, there's any variety of reasons why they may want to play here, but then we really have to spike the ticket. So, and we figure, like, well, there's such a demand for this audience, but we only need to sell 500 tickets. There may be 1,000, 1,200 people that want to see them, and some of them are going to go, nah, not at 40 bucks, not going. But there'll still be enough of them that'll say, oh, yeah, to see them in a smaller environment. I think we can also present... Uh, I think people who are here rather regularly understand that compared to some of these other venues, the, they're not going to have to pay to park. The drink prices really aren't that much different than they would be at a, you know, a little higher-end neighborhood bar. You know, you're going to be paying five or six dollars for a beer instead of, you know, some of these places when you get into these bigger shows, it can be, you know. $12-$15 for a draft beer. Uh, we don't gouge people like that. So I'm sure. I'm... Um, we're hoping that people see that they can come to multiple shows a month. You could just pick one show and go to a show at the queue or something or and blow through your entire uh, you know entertainment budget for the month or you know you could come to three or four shows here for 20 bucks and have a few drinks and a hamburger and you know your cost is still going to be under you know 40 50 bucks for a night or even less if you want interesting bands that aren't but that you're going to find and you're going to see them grow which i think personally that's what like i love in music i don't know about michael but like i love finding artists or bands who start off small or who are still small in like the alt indie world at the moment and then they just keep growing and like it's a pretty cool it's a cool thing to watch bands grow watch people grow and like usually they're good people nice people and it's a cool little thing yeah i mean i've seen that repeat you know over and over and over again here you know bands that started in the tavern got to the ballroom and now are playing at huge places you know can you tell you know when you see somebody playing in the tavern are you you ever thinking oh man they're gonna be they're gonna be big one day often yes um i've definitely missed a few of some i mean there's some bands that seem like oh this band's gonna go and they for whatever reason they just don't get off the ground there's always a certain amount of luck involved in it but yeah you know when we present an early show by the Avet Brothers, who started in the tavern, or the Decembrists, who started in our smaller really? tavern room, or the Black Keys, who started in the tavern room. You could see with all the bands, like, wow, this is a really great That's band. Crazy. And what they, do you think it is about those bands? Just the... Well, those bands are all completely different, but, you know, they're talented musicians, and they have songs, and they have, uh, you know... That it's also that just exactly. something extra yeah. that um, you know uh, the White Stripes got big as a two-piece band, and then a lot of two-piece bands were there, but most of them didn't get that far. But right away, you could see, well, the Black Keys have a really different take on things, and they had songs, and their sounds good. Sing, you know, the Dan was a great singer and um, you know you could also see that like you book them once or twice in that small room you can just see the audiences are getting bigger like they're doubling every time and and that uh, you know the early show most people might be mostly family and friends but then you know the next show and then all of a sudden something catches on and bands can just go that's the weird part for yeah. me when the band you know, I'm used to seeing the bands go from being able to sell 20 tickets to 50 to 200 to 500. I've seen that progression, you know, 50, 100 times at least. I've seen bands have that kind of growth here. But then, you know, when they become 
suddenly are going to the queue. <laughs> right. Doesn't make much sense. It's really different. Well, you know, it does, but it, it, it's it's in in and the bands that do that deserve, you know, every bit of credit for doing that. They had to have something there. It does take a you know, there is some luck and timing, and things that are involved with that as well, and um, you know, the uh, bands that get big usually have some smart people around them. They eventually, get a good management around them that help them make the right decisions and uh well do you think as well talking about the management part do you think social media and i know the rise of like of streaming and i know on spotify and apple music like if you listen to a certain band or a certain some something and then the algorithms will start playing you other bands that sound like that how do you think that's played into do you think that plays into bands rise quickly to popularity? I'm sure it does, uh, but it's not not my uh, area of expertise that much, but uh, I've never signed up for Spotify. <laughs> I have my own ways of finding music, and I have so much music that I have to listen to. What's your normal way of finding music? I'm very intrigued. Because I go through, I don't know how you listen to music, I go through uh, Spotify, and I go through... Um, like Relics' website and finding stuff on there that I've never listened to or the Relics magazine. That's how I find stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you don't use Spotify or any of the... No, but, you know, uh, you know, Relics is a great source for certain kinds of music, but, like, every little niche of music has those kind of spots, mm -hmm. like, where there's, like, opinion leaders. I look at labels. Okay. And there's a lot of labels that I'm like, I'm going to be pretty interested in at least giving a listen to anything... It comes out on a particular, you know, label. Um, there's others where I'm looking at booking agencies that I just know, like, everybody they bring me is good. So if they sign up a new act, I'm going to listen to them, and I'm going to immediately send them an email saying, you know, when they're, next time they're around these parts, we'd like to do a show. Um, so do you ask for CDs, or do you just find them online, or...? <laughs> no, it used to be, everyone, I mean, it used to be that CDs were coming in here. I mean, the early years of the club, the bands would send CDs. They you would send, see the radio. I was station. going through some stuff the other day. I was cleaning out a room, but there were, like, all these VHS tapes that oh the bands gosh. were sending along. I'm like, Jesus, I don't even believe I have these. I think they mostly we, the CD pitched them. We but, record the podcast, the whole room. It's like a little little tiny studio like this corner right and the whole wall cds that we burn and like oh my god yeah so i mean just because i have limited time i'm for me it's other musicians agents you know people in the biz are are like sharing information back and forth and you know i you know i, I look at relics a lot i look at pitchfork a lot i mean i don't like everything that they Course. are championing but it's like a definitely uh something that you would look at and um but i for whatever reason i've never done the spotify thing i just i just like to find my own it there's i'm you know i'm an older guy compared to you guys so it just there's something that's foreign to me about the having algorithms pick music for right. me. Although I know lots of people say they find really cool stuff that way. Well, that's uh, how I found Brinston Maroney and some of the cool, like Boy Pablo. Yeah. And well, it'll happen when I'm watching a YouTube video, you know, stuff pops up, you know, they'll, they'll put you... I can't say I'm totally, like, away from that structure, but I've kind of... Um, even though our business relies a lot on social media, I'm not really personally a social media guy. I just, uh, uh, have you guys hired a social media team to kind of scout and uh... yeah well we have a marketing team here yeah. uh, we have a marketing director and usually at least one ass assistant working in that um, we have uh, we have a booking staff and we have a marketing staff and those teams get together every week um, 
the first part of the meeting, the marketing and booking go together, and we go through all the shows we have, and what marketing have we done, what's working, what's not, and then we have like a separate part of it, which is just booking, where we look at like, well, do we want to take a risk on this deal, or we have these holes that we need to fill, what can we do, uh, that kind of thing, but yeah, the... What's your yeah, I can't. I mean, the business has gotten way too big for any one person to be in charge of everything. So, um, you know, I'm talking to my marketing people all the time and pushing them and prodding them and asking them questions and making suggestions. But they're the ones that know how to put the campaigns what's together. Your, what's your main way of marketing to everyone? Because I saw your Well, this is interesting right now. I mean, it's really weird how to market this. I mean, you know, historically, you know, you, you spend a certain, you know, we've been seen magazine every week with a full page ad for decades. That was one way. Uh, we would do Facebook ads. and I mean, we do organic posts, but they tend not to get very far unless you put money behind things. So, um, we run Facebook ads, or in some cases, we'll get with the band's management, and we determine that maybe it would be better if the Facebook advertising didn't come from the Beachland, but it came from the artist directly to the potential consumer. Like, oh, we're playing at the Beachland this day. Right. You guys and sometimes, the, you know, we have to then carve money out that we have to pay them back to do that. Some bands just do it on their own as part of a regular course of things. So, um, you know, we used to market a lot through college radio stations, although they're just getting going a little bit uh, again. Uh, WJCU is back yeah. on the air, right? Yeah, we've been on. Yeah, and, uh, I think through, we were on through the whole pandemic, me and really? Michael were, yep. Really? Okay. Well, then, like, you know, but WCSB still isn't really going yeah. again. RUW just more recently got back, so you know we we try to push through. You know some print advertising, some. Uh, when I saw your Instagram, I was it's, I think it's around twelve thousand followers, and you know even if you're not hitting every follower on your twelve thousand, right? Like you still might get reached. Like me, for example, I'm one of the people who is scrolling through your stuff who's not a follower. And mm -hmm. then it's like, oh, this stuff's cool, and it's follow, and then mm -hmm. spread the word. We also have a, you know, a, a, an email list of okay. thirty plus thousand people wow. that we call periodically, and so we send. I mean, it used to be that we send out something every, you know, an email newsletter every week that would push the shows that week, highlight a few bigger shows coming up, other pertinent information. We've now gone down to just uh, two per month. We're just the cost of you know you have to use an email service. It costs money, and they charge you by how many emails you send. And given the sparsity of shows, we can't quite kind of sucks, but we can't do the weekly communication now. It's down to just every twice a month. Um, now, Mark, you if know. you had to raise any ticket prices? I'm just kind of thinking about... Of course, and yeah. that's a big problem because it's like now the ticket prices have to be pretty high. Right. Because you have such a smaller capacity to sell to, so... I mean, that's got to uh, be such a fine And yeah. we're, uh, with these national acts now playing, the, the only way you can buy a ticket is you have to buy a table of four, and then we hope that people will... It won't be as expensive if you find three people to divide this with. How much is um, a table of four right now? Well, uh, we have a local band playing on um, Friday, kind of a reggae-ish band called Land of Panda. It's $35 for a table of four. That works out to about $7.50 per ticket. That's kind of our baseline, and then it goes up from there. We have Tab Benoit playing next week, who you know used to come here and sell out the place regularly. I mean, he's out there with a tour bus, and you know. So there, that's the one we're doing the multiple shows, but that 
ticket is very pricey, and it's a $320 for a table of four. It's $80 wow. a ticket, which seems nuts, but it's the only way a show like that could really go on because, you know, the artist, I think I may have mentioned this earlier in the interview, I'm not sure, but that artist is now playing multiple shows to in per night and multiple nights to make less than what he was making before. I mean, there's some of our customers are like, oh, this is just way too high, you guys are gouging. It's like, well, we really aren't. And I understand if you can't afford it, I know times are tough, but I mean, it's like, it's really, the artists are barely making any money and the venues are barely making any money. So for any live music to go on right now, it has to be presented in this, you know, four top tables. We're going to do, we're doing some shows now where there's two top tables, um, that brings the price down, but yeah, the, the prices are kind of, you know, and it's definitely a disincentive for customers. I get it, uh, but there's been, really no other way to do it, you know. Have you been communicating with the other venues in the area? You know, is this kind of the standard? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of venues presenting much other than local acts right now, but uh, they all face the same thing. You know, we're one of the first, well, I guess there are a couple that have. I mean, Grog Shop has been doing mostly local shows. Uh, most of the venues are doing mostly local stuff, which, but even with a local event, if you've only got 20, you know, I think Grog Shop has 20 tables to sell or, or less, and same with us. It's like, you, it's, it, even if you sell out, you're still not going to even, it's still not going to be a, a very financially productive well, you said it's night for you. Fifteen percent of normal, right? Yeah. Right. And people forget. I know this happens in sports all the time, and my dad works in sports, and it's like people forget it's a business at the end of the day, right? Pete, you want to enjoy yourself and all that, but it's like you have to take home money as the owner. The band has to take home money. It's like every, and people, you it sounds like you enjoy what you do, but at the end of the day, it's your livelihood. Right, and I have a staff I have to right. you know, keep employed, and the same thing with the bands. You know, they've there's the band, paying all the band members, but then they have on the road with them. They at a minimum are going to probably have a merch seller and a tour manager, and, and uh, often they're bringing their own sound man with them. But then even without them not on the road, they have a publicist working behind the scenes and they got to pay them. And then the agent takes a percentage of the, uh, you know, the agents get paid by getting a percentage of what the band gets paid. So when those numbers start going down, it's just like, it's, it's very close to not being worth it right now. And uh, it's, uh, you know, so... Hopefully when this is all over, though, everything's just going to jump back out well, and be amazing. I think so, but it, it's I don't know that there's going to be like a date where all of a sudden it's back. Exactly. It's going to be very gradual. Sure. And, you know, a lot of venues aren't going to make it. Yeah. I'm hoping we're one of the ones that will. Um, there are, you know, the, one of the good things that's happened with this is that the venues have gotten together to working together a lot more than ever before so there's uh, there's some information on our website for NEVA the National Independent Venue Association which has hired lobbyists to work in Washington and working on procedures so that places can safely open and you know just be a, a clearinghouse to push for government support because really this is what's needed you, you can't you if you want there to be anything left at the end of this uh, these venues simply are going to need uh, some level of governmental support because you know it's it's not it's you know it was great when they say oh yeah you can open up again but then you just quickly realize it's just it's virtually impossible to make the, the bottom line work. Sure. And nobody can do it for very long, losing money. Well, there's something so magical about being in an intimate 
ballroom setting with a band who's just jamming out and a night then and it's not costing you hundreds of hundreds of dollars and there's just something we can't lose that as the it's something so great about the music scene in my opinion that I love and I miss it like crazy. I like to I like to come here at night and see great bands. I like to go to other places. It's you know seeing live music is a huge part of what keeps me happy and not depressed. And absent that, it's been difficult for me. I think it's been difficult for a lot of people. Um, When I think there's something about the power of live music, uh, I think it's very there's something very tribal in it. In, in my opinion, um, so I think there's just something, especially bands who sound like they do on the records. So you're, you're you're hearing them, and then you come to the show, and they sound the same. And you're like, this is amazing, and it's one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. To your point, Mark. I mean, it's kind of insane that I mean they expect you guys to stay afloat. They they only permit 15% capacity, and there was only one stimulus, you know, back in July. I mean, it's it's really tough for me to even stomach that. And they may shut things down altogether again. Well, the numbers are going up right now, wow. and, you know, we're, you know, I, it may or may not happen. If you look in Europe, right. they've, shut, they've shut the bars and restaurants down um, or just allowed to go or, you know, but you can't do to go with a, with a band. Right. And who do you report to? I mean, has, you know, there have been CDC inspectors or health inspectors that come to your shows and make sure that everything... Not so much. Um, I think most of the um, most of the uh, state inspections I don't think there's been any federal inspections. It would be a state level or local health local health department. Um, I think it's mostly been state level on the enforcement and the things. And I think that's driven almost entirely by complaints. So uh, if they get a report that a bar, restaurant, venue has people packed in, nobody's wearing masks, then they may get an inspection. And, And if they aren't, if the inspection finds that they're not complying with protocols, then they can be fined, uh, or in some cases of repeated things, they can have their liquor license can be taken away. Um, so uh, I don't know if they're doing any spot inspections. Maybe they are. I think it's driven more by if you're really not being careful or making your customers be careful. Somebody sees that, reports, an inspection comes down. So. Yeah, I just, I mean, I do it for every venue, every restaurant. I mean, my favorite restaurant's been closed down. I know you guys are in the same boat as every, every entertainment, there's food in the street. It's really tough for me to just watch. It is tough. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we've invested a lot in equipment, staff training, ventilation upgrades to make it as safe as possible.
I mean, getting through this winter is going to be really tough. I think next summer, we're really 